นโมทัสสะบุคควะทวารหะทวสมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคควะทวารหะทวสมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคควะทวารหะทวสมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนมัสสะA couple of questions have been offered this evening, and um, as I've said before, I'm always pleased when when questions are given. I would uh, comment for those who are, are new to the meetings that the most welcome questions are questions about applying practice in daily life. And you might find that if you ask very heady sort of questions, then I might respond by just say, "Go and look it up in a book," uh, because. Um, the last thing I want to be doing is lecturing about Buddhism. I think the, uh, one of the advantages of our being together is, is um, just sharing the opportunity to contemplate things together and to come out of our heads and, and come down a little bit deeper. So, um, yeah, just I would encourage people to ask questions, particularly questions that pertain to uh, how we how we apply these teachings in daily life and, and practice. So the first question here this evening is: Could you please talk a bit about the Vinaya rules? I think there are 227 of them. Do you keep them all? And if not, who decides which ones are not to be kept? I have noticed some monks will only receive things from women onto a special cloth, whereas some monks take objects directly into their hands. Uh, that's a very simple, practical question. I'm happy to answer it. It, it, on the other hand, it could be uh, the subject of a very long discourse, but uh, I don't want to uh, go into it too great a length, uh, slightly specialized and, and, and tending towards being a bit heady. But on the other hand, it is also a very good question. So just very briefly, uh, yeah, there, are, um, there are 227 specific rules mentioned in the Code of Discipline, which is known as the Patimoka, which is the, the code of rules that the monks recite. If there's four or more of us in a community, we get together and we recite these rules every two weeks. So one monk recites them, and all the rest of us sit and listen. And we do keep, as far as I can remember, uh, we keep all 227. There are actually hundreds more minor rules that are uh, mentioned in the commentaries, but there's 227 that are specifically referred to in the Code of Discipline. And, and I, I saw this, this um, question while, I was, while we were doing the chanting, and my mind started drifting, thinking, hmm, do we keep all the rules? <laughs> and I thought, I'd better ask Ajahn Abhinando. Because <laughs> um, after being in this business for 30 years, it's sort of like the road code. You yeah. internalize it. And uh, the point of the rules, of course, and I'm not going to give an hour-long lecture on this subject, but the point of the rules is the principles behind them, that is restraint and mindfulness and, and discipline, containment, these things, these principles. So the actual wording of the rules is not something that, you know, after 30 years you spend every day thinking about. In your first five years you do need to be thinking about them very regularly because they are pretty sophisticated and refined. But uh, casting my mind around, as far as I can remember, 227 rules, I, I, think, I think we do keep them all still, and certainly we're supposed to. Um, 
the characteristic of the Theravada tradition, which we belong to, Southern School of Buddhism, one of the characteristics of it was that the elders, that's Thera, means elders, the elders decided um, at a council not too long after the Buddha's death, certainly a long time ago now anyway, the elders decided that they wouldn't change any of the rules, whereas some of the other schools decided, well, you've got to adjust to the time. The Buddha in his own life, towards the end of his life, actually told his attendant, Venerable Ananda, that you could dispense with the minor rules. And the Venerable Ananda, he was the personal attendant to the Buddha, but he wasn't perfect, as attendants sometimes aren't. And he forgot to ask the Lord which were the minor rules. And so the Lord did say you could dispense with the minor rules, but then there was an argument once the Buddha died, well, which ones are minor and which ones aren't. So one school decided, well, out of respect to the Lord, we're not going to change any of them, and that's us. And then there's the other well, other schools, of which the Mahayana were amongst them, and the Vajrayana, uh, Tibetan, Chinese, uh, Japanese, these traditions. Um, although actually the rules never made it to Japan, so it doesn't apply to them. But uh, they were more into adaptation. So we don't have any options for changing the rules. One of the rules is you can't change the rules. So, that's, so it's all stitched up. Um, now, there, there are a few, I think the, uh, the last, the, there's different classifications of the rules. The first four are t- totally serious rules about if you break them, like you know, killing human beings, stealing, stealing and so on, these rules, if you break them, you're finished. You're thrown out for the rest of your life. You can't be a monk again. And the nuns also have their equivalent. The next bunch of rules are also very serious Sufficiently so that if you break them, you've got to get 20 monks together and you've got to go through this whole procedure of purification. The next classification of the rules is you have to give something up as well as telling a monk about it. Like, for instance, a robe. If you've been given a piece of cloth, you have to determine it within so many days. This is my robe and go through a ceremony of determining it. If you don't do that and you keep that cloth past the allowed time, then you've got to give that robe up to somebody else. And they actually give it back to you, and then you still have it. But uh, it's a way of just basically making you more mindful. The next classification of rules is you can, if you break them, you can be uh, cleared of it by just telling another monk about it. And then there's the last classification, which are the minor rules. Of, well, whether the minor ones or not, we don't know, but they are very small rules. And they're more to do with etiquette, a lot of them, and uh, those rules also you have to, you can be cleared by just telling another monk about them, about your having committed an offence. It's not the other monk forgives you, but just the acknowledgement of having made a, a mistake uh, clears you of it. But the reason I tell you that is to say that there are different classifications of rules, and so our attitude towards them is not necessarily all the same. And the lowest classification, these very small rules, deal with, as I said, a lot of things to do with etiquette and manners. If you break them out of a sense of disrespect for the training, well, then it is a breach of the rule. But if you break them for some other reason, like, for instance, there's this rule that we're not allowed to teach Dhamma to people with a hat on. So if I go to the WI and I give a discourse on the teachings and these women have all got hats on, now, I'm not going to say, now, come on, ladies, I want you to take your hats off before I talk to you. <laughs> B, 
Because in this society, you know, having a hat on is not a gesture of disrespect, whereas in India, uh, 2,500 years ago, if you went to see a, a monk or a nun as a gesture of respect, you would remove your hat. If you didn't, it was a sign of disrespect. And so to teach Dhamma to somebody who's being disrespectful to you is a, is a, a breach of one of the very small rules. So, in other words, there's a little flexibility in those areas that are to do with etiquette. And so with some of those things there, you might see that uh, there's a lack of consistency sometimes going around different monasteries and so on due to interpretation. And so there are some of the other slightly more important rules, like there's one that says unless you are sick, you're not allowed to light a fire uh, to warm yourself. And I, I think that, you know, but it's a definition of sickness, actually. They're very good. They say the definition of sickness is if you're ill at ease without something. So, I, you know, I'm pretty clear that I'm ill at ease in England most of the time without lighting the fire. So I don't, you know, I'm not, you might say I'm not terribly strict about that rule. But uh, in that area, you might find some, some, some slight, you know, fuzziness or grayness. But around certainly the, uh, the major rules, I think, in, in our communities, you won't find anybody uh, fudging them at all. You'll find them all very regularly and strictly observed. Regarding this small point at the end here, I've noticed some monks using what we call an offering cloth. So you will see this, that um, sometimes monks pull this little cloth out and put it down in front of them if women are going to offer something. And and they don't receive it into their hand, they offer it onto, the, onto this offering cloth. And this is not a, a rule as such, it's a tradition from Thailand. And it's, it's just a well, very refined, it's not even an interpretation of the rules, because even the Thais wouldn't say that it was a rule. But it's a gesture of respect towards the training of, of boundaries, so there should be no contact, monks and women or nuns and men, there shouldn't be any physical contact. And so in, the, in as much as you're receiving something, there is a risk there may be some physical contact if you take it directly from their hand. So there is this tradition in Thailand of putting a special cloth down. But it's only in Thailand. Uh, it might be in Cambodia and Laos, I'm not sure. It's certainly not in Sri Lanka because quite opposite is the case, as I've, I found when I first left Thailand and I was in situations where there were Sri Lankans and Thais and Burmese and Cambodians and Laotians all wanting to make offerings in their own traditional way and, and I was just, my head was spinning trying to keep everybody happy and you think you're receiving something from a Thai person and you put a cloth out and it turns out to be a Sri Lankan woman and she gets upset because you don't, you, you know, in fact she thinks you're breaking your rules because you didn't receive it properly and so there are these kind of, you know, little things go on sometimes uh, around some of these um, rules of etiquette and traditions and so on. But uh, certainly I wouldn't worry too much about it. But also I would say don't ever be afraid to ask if you're ever in a situation with monks and nuns and you have questions about their rules. You say, oh, I thought you had a rule about such and such. That's fine. By all means, ask. You know, you see monks doing things or nuns doing things that you think are against the training ask. There's no problem with that. No, no monk or nun who's serious about their training will have any problem with your asking these things. And, but uh, yeah, I would say that uh, on this particular question of using the cloth, uh, the longer we are in the West, the, the less comfortable most of us are 
worth using this because there's, the, uh, there's a lot of pain around the whole um, power issue between men and women and, and if you can receive something directly from men, why can't you receive it from women? And, and it throws that up. And actually the gesture of making offerings is supposed to be an occasion for happiness. And so if a strict adherence to a Thai tradition is going to cause unhappiness, then I'm personally in favor of, of doing away with it. But then sometimes it becomes complicated because sometimes Thai people have been here for many years and, and they don't want to observe it, but then there's Thai people who have newly come and they do want to observe it. What you're faced with basically is the, the fact that on conventional level you know, of, of existence, things are not satisfactory. You know, <laughs> you know, even keeping all the rules absolutely strictly is not going to make you pure. Um, or make us pure as far as that goes. Yeah. Rules are there as guidelines and they're there to help us and uh, not to make life difficult. But when we attach too much meaning to the rules, then uh, they become a source of irritation and, and, and disharmony and, and, and suffering. If we don't ascribe enough value to them, well, then it's just like driving a car. Ajahn Abhinanda here is from Germany, and he's used to driving on the right. He says, I don't care what they say in England. I like driving on the right. I'm going to drive on the right. <laughs> well, he wouldn't do that. But, of course, that's not very wise. All doing our own thing uh, and feeling justified in it doesn't work. Uh, so there needs to be wisdom in how we approach the rules. If there's not, well then, we don't ascribe the appropriate amount of value to them. I did have something I wanted to speak about as well this evening, and so this question about, which he says, could you say more about emptiness? Uh, I'm going to leave this for another night. But I wanted to speak about this thing that, uh, at the moment, we're getting all these Christmas cards wishing us peace. And there's uh, peace up in neon lights all around the place and people are talking about wishing peace for Christmas and New Year. And I thought maybe it would be quite uh, useful to spend a little time pondering on what we, what we, what we think peace is and uh, how, to go about, how to go about generating peace or engendering peace in the society, in the community, in the life in our own lives and from so from a practice perspective uh, something like peace it's always helpful to to look at the opposite you say well if I want peace I certainly like peace so well what is it that I don't like you know, this is there's always the place to start with with inquiry and Buddhist practice is to, to find the questions. What, what questions do I have about this? Because if we find our own questions, they're going to take us to the place where we're going to find our own answers. So peace is what I want. Yeah. How do I get it? How do I recognize it? It's like anything else that you, you know, you want something for, um, I want a, I want an adapter cable for my, for my PDA, so when I go traveling to Thailand, it'll be easy to carry and recharge. And so I've got to ask, where do I find one? You've got to ask the right question. If you don't ask the right questions, well, then you don't find what you're looking for. So I ask the right questions, and now Nina's going to find it for me. 
as far as my PDA cable goes. But as far as peace is concerned, asking the question, what is not peace, can be very helpful. I think we, I think we consider this when we're talking about uh, loving kindness and, and compassion. You know, what is not loving kindness? What is not compassion? Well, peace, the non-existence of peace or the absence of peace is the presence of troubles, isn't it? It's conflicts, difficulties, suffering, turmoil, confusion. And so that's what we, that's what we don't want. We don't want to have suffering. We don't want to have problems. Because just to say we want something or, or to really, really want it doesn't do it. Like the other thing, at the moment we're approaching New Year and so soon we'll have New Year's Eve and the opportunity for, for making New Year's Eve, New Year's determinations. And say, well, I really want such and such. Somebody rang me yesterday, I think it was, and said, well, I've only got three packets of duty-free cigarettes left, and then that's it. New Year's Eve, no more. Well, <laughs> good luck. Uh, and I could, uh, maybe she was asking me to bear witness to her, her determination, and sometimes actually that's very helpful if we're making a determination to do something, to ask somebody else to bear witness to it can help us. But I think I could tell from the, the tone of her voice that she was approaching this with, with, with a tremendous amount of desire and willpower. And I, well, I know actually as a fact that she's, she's um, tried this before and failed uh, before. So... Like with, with peace or with any, anything that's, that's troubling us, yeah. just to use willpower is not enough. And so I would suggest that feeling for the questions, our own questions, what do I need to do? What do I need to do about this? Where, where do I need to go? What do I need to look at? What do I need to feel? With regards to smoking, there was uh, there's um, a book out that I heard. A good friend of mine who smoked for a very long time recently succeeded in giving up after having read a book. I think it's called uh, The Easy Way to Stop Smoking. I think that's what it's called. And it's by a guy called Alan Carr. And apparently what he advocates, I haven't read it, but apparently what he advocates is... Instead of just, you know, going on about how bad it is for your health, I mean, we all know that, and that doesn't stop us doing all sorts of things, or feeling guilty about it or using will, what he advocates actually is, is inquiring, uh, looking, closely in, looking closely into what's really going on. Like when you want a fag, so I really want a fag, it would be really good to have a fag right now. <sighs> yeah, and you have a fag. Do you feel good? Do you really feel good? I, I remember when I used to smoke cigarettes. Actually, I do remember really wanting to have a cigarette. But when I had one, yeah, actually, it didn't feel that good, really. Not really. So it doesn't make your mouth, mouth taste very good. And, but if you ask the right questions and you look into it, what you start to see, actually, is what's really going on 
there's, there's a craving there that, as he explains apparently in this book, that there's a craving there that is based upon a nicotine addiction, that the body's become addicted. Like when you first start smoking, it's not very nice. I remember when I first started smoking, I think I was 15, we used to smoke baling twine. We used to get it off the bales, you know, binder twine. I don't know what you call it in this country. Or dock leaves, you know, they weren't very good. Really. Then we graduated to tobacco. But that wasn't very good either. It was ghastly stuff, actually. But then after a while, it kicks in because actually what they do is they put ammonia in with the tobacco and that increases the rate at which the nicotine or the drugs in there cut into your system. And so you become addicted quicker. And so you actually develop this physical dependency upon this drug. And the body's craving this drug. And the irritation of craving, that's actually what we want to be free from. The craving is an irritation. And we want to be free from the craving, free from that irritation. And so that's what we really want. We don't really want a cigarette. What we really want is to be free from the craving. Well, if we understand that, well, then we can go back and say, well, actually, if I restrain gratification of desire, maybe I'll just come off the addiction. Now, that's a good thought. That's a wise thought. And we can use this, we can apply this to, to all sorts of desires. And it's, uh, it's often, the, it's generally the case that when we get caught up in craving, we think that when I get what I want, I'll be happy. For sure. I really feel that. But if we look a little closer and say, well, this craving, this is the absence of contentment. This is the absence of peace. Yeah. Yeah, this is definitely not peaceful. What is it that's going to make me peaceful? Is it getting what I want? Because actually, I felt this way before, and I've given myself what I want, but it didn't really do it. It didn't really do it. I've been through um, cigarettes as a classic example, or well, eating and various other things, consuming consuming it's, a, it's actually the it's a, it's an addiction consuming i read this um, comment recently i think it was from a magazine called affluenza which is talking about a, a rampant disease that's spreading around the world to do with shopping and apparently the average american uh, spends six hours a week shopping these days and 40 minutes a week playing with their children I can't you know, verify that quote, but that's probably quite true. It seemed like a reliable source. The addiction of consuming, whether it's tobacco or alcohol or goods, it really does give you that feeling that when I gratify this desire, I'll be happy. But again, if we stop and we inquire, we ask the right kind of questions... Well, then we get a different response. We start to, it, it, it takes us deeper. It's not just asking our head, because our head can come up with all sorts of stories that can justify things. And we, if we're, especially if we're caught up in fantasy of how good it's going to feel when we've gratified the desire. Yeah. But if we're quieter, and this is, of course, what our meditation is about, how I learn to let go of anything that's extra until there's just a peaceful, quiet mind, well, then we can ask ourselves deep questions, real questions. You're like, does gratifying this desire really make, will that make me happy? Somebody was saying to me the other day how they, now they, they find they've got enough money to basically buy whatever they want. 
And uh, they say they used to just go into shop and whatever they want, they just go and buy it. Well, now he's discovered that if he picks something up on an instinct to buy it, he asks himself, do I really want this? Do I really want this? And he, he just stays with it for a while. And then he started finding that if he, if he just puts it back down again, he feels better than if he went and bought it. The feeling, the good feeling that comes from not having to follow desire actually is nicer, is better than the gratification, the pleasure that comes with the gratification of desire. So I suggest this not as, as some sort of uh, injunction or something, this is what we should be doing, not at all, that doesn't help, but rather to encourage the contemplation or the asking of questions or what the Buddha called the Dhammavichaya. Dhamma vichaya, inquiry, dhamma inquiry. Dhamma, inquiring into the reality of what's going on. What's the reality of desire? It's dhamma vichaya is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. The first one is mindfulness, sati, then dhamma vichaya, and then virya, energy, and then piti, bliss, then pasati, tranquility, and then samadhi, focus, and then equanimity, upeka, the seven factors of enlightenment. The second one being this inquiry, learning how to ask questions where it matters, the right questions, right time, right place. And if we do that, well, then we discover for ourselves this, this new level of appreciation comes in. So, aha, actually, no, giving myself what I want doesn't necessarily make me happy. But now that's quite different from trying to use willpower or quite different from, from moralizing about it, yeah. like going shopping all the time and say, I should stop shopping. I just, you know, there's, there's all this rubbish in the world, you know, and I'm, my house is full of junk and, and, and consuming all this stuff. You know, you come back laden down with plastic bags. You, you must have seen people, maybe you'd still do it yourself, I don't know, you know, walking around with dozens of plastic bags. I encourage the Anagarikas here to to uh, take plastic bags in the back of the car when they go shopping, if they need to go shopping, take our own plastic bags. It's very easy to do. The world's full of plastic bags. There's too many plastic bags around. A couple of years ago, or two or three years ago, I think, 2002, there was a whale washed up on the beach in France. I don't know if you've heard about this. And they cut it open. This whale had 800 kilos of plastic bags inside it. 800 kilos. This poor old whale was poodling around looking for lunch and just took in a, a ton of plastic bags. And then another ton. I mean, you know, the world's full of plastic bags and yet we still go shopping. Well, what do we do it for? Well, because we're not asking the right questions. Yeah. So if we see this and say, well, I've got to stop going shopping so much. Yeah. But if we just try and tell ourselves to stop doing it, doesn't work. What does work is if there's a shift of the way we see what's going on. So what we arrive at is an understanding. And so like with, for instance, that stopping smoking, say, ah, so actually it's not that I really want a cigarette. What I really want is to be free from the craving which is born out of my addiction to nicotine. Now with that understanding, then a whole different level of energy it's accessed. We don't have to use willpower. We don't have to use will then. Well, a little willpower, but not mainly willpower. 
And so understanding transforms our behavior. Understanding is a wonderful thing. Yeah, it's just, we're just at the moment sending out the, uh, the newsletter, the Hilltop newsletter, and my little contribution there, Ajahn's comments, were, was about this, just about this point. Actually, what a wonderful thing understanding is. If we cultivate understanding, then it transforms the way we engage with the world. Mm. Our relationship with the world. Yes. We can be easily, easily conned in this. All sorts of tricks available with us in relationship realms, in, in, in consumer realms, in, in health. There's all these health things. You know. I can be fooled sometimes. I look at these magazines and these new vitamins and things that you can take. You're going to cure your, cure your arthritis. I think, oh, I like some of those. But <laughs> you've got to look deeper. You've got to really ask questions. If you don't ask questions, we can be very easily conned. You know, I think probably some of you have heard one of my favorite stories about that, that diet program that was available in Sri Lanka. It was very successful and very popular. People were buying these pills. They were natural pills. It was natural medicine. No nasty chemicals, natural medicine. You buy these little capsules and take them. I don't know for how long, but people were taking them and they were losing weight. But they didn't ask the right sort of questions. And it was having fabulous results. And when the medical people got involved and somebody got involved and asked the right sort of questions, what they found out was that it actually was full of tapeworm eggs. And so the people were, you know, obviously filling their stomachs with tapeworms. And so, of course, they were losing weight. <laughs> Very successful. <laughs> but, you know, you've got to be careful what you eat. And we <laughs> that poor whale, I mean, if it was a human being, human beings, if we put a can of baked beans, put them on the stove, cooked and ate them, and found out it was full of plastic. Now, I think whales have got rights, quite frankly. You know, I don't know about this litigation society done with this suing on behalf of whales is the right approach. But uh, <laughs> I do have compassion for whales and for the planet. And I think with regards to the uh, relationship we have with consuming things and with our habits, which all of us probably have to some degree, and coming New Year, we want to change some of these unhelpful habits. If we just approach them with an idea of, well, this is how I should be. I've got to, you know, I don't want to have this habit. Or, or let's start off by saying peace. We've got to have peace in the world. We should, this is, we should, everybody should be peaceful. They shouldn't be fighting with each other. We're looking at what we do about our unpeacefulness and, and trying to understand it. Instead of using this, just using an idealistic image the perfect me. The perfect me keeps all the rules impeccably. Well, I think, personally, I think I keep the rules good enough, but there's room for improvement on all sorts of levels in behavior of body and speech and mind. And I could imagine the perfect me and, and try and invent it and willfully force it. But I've learned a long time ago, actually, that that doesn't work. What does work is understanding. Understanding, why am I unpeaceful? Or why am I unskillful? So whatever you might be uh, imagining uh, getting together for the new year or um, 
resolutions that you might be intending to make. You know, I've spoken to several people who have, have mentioned to me over the last year, really, about how pleased they are that they've completely stopped drinking alcohol. Now, they used to maybe, they weren't a bunch of drunks before, but you know, now they've completely stopped. And not because they kind of got into some heavy moralizing thing, you know, willfully forcing themselves or whatever. And, and you can hear when they talk about it, there's a quiet sense of contentment. No regrets at all. They're clearly, absolutely no drinking anymore. And they feel really, really good about it. And, uh, and that's also something that when we're, when we're trying to give something up, if we succeed a little bit, to, uh, to feel how it feels when we succeed, like that guy who, who didn't buy everything that he picked up in the shops anymore, just put it down, and it felt good, to be mindful of how good it feels. When we, in, when we get lost in our habits or heedlessness or whatever, and it feels bad to be mindful of that, say, oh, yeah, actually, having a cigarette doesn't really feel so good, or getting drunk doesn't feel so good, or lying doesn't feel so good, or whatever. But then when we, when we improve a little bit to really stop and take that on board and say, oh yeah, actually, restraint feels good. The fact that I didn't speak heedlessly or kind of that, that feels really good. And that energizes our resolve. So yes, we have resolve. Uh, we do need some willpower. But it's got to be resolve that's, that's informed by understanding, not just by willpower. So in this, uh, these uh, thoughts this evening on how to engender our world, our society, our being with a little more peace, um, I would encourage looking at that within ourselves that is unpeaceful and then feeling for the questions we need to ask. Yeah. Giving ourselves the permission to find our own questions. Asking questions is the way, not willful effort. So uh, thank you very much this evening for your attention. Uh,